Good morning, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. On this Lord's Day, we will be reading from Psalm chapter 139, verses 1 through 6. Um, If you're using the blue ESV Bibles, this passage of scripture can be found on page 300. Um, Please remember that those Bibles are available for you to take home if you do not have one. Once again, we'll be reading Psalm chapter 139, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Thus says God's word. Let's pray to hear well the words that have been spoken over us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, it is always living, always active. God, that it always accomplishes what you send it forth to do, Lord. And so today, Lord, I pray that we who believe would rest deeply in the intimacy that is is presented in your omniscience, that you know us, God, and that none of our ways, none of our trouble, none of our stresses, none of our joys, none of our, our, our blessings are hidden from you, but you see them. God, we pray also that you would remind those of us who have gathered this morning, who are running from you, rebelling of you, that none of our ways are hidden from you. And God, no one is is sinning covertly. They may hide their sin from people around them, but they can never hide it from you because you know all, you know everything. So Lord, help us all, whether we believe Or whether we are rejecting you, help us to see the magnitude of this reality. And as I always say, to conform our lives to it in the way that your spirit intends. For it to be the cause of great rejoicing and great worship on behalf of your people. And great trembling and a great warning to those who are not your people. And so Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. I pray that you would be with me and that you, your hand would be upon me, and that you would guide all of my words, that they would be pleasing to you, and that they would be a blessing to your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Eddie and Elizabeth, and Alistair, it's really, really good to see you this morning. We have, a, that we have our newest member over here. Alistair James is, is uh, how old is he now? Four weeks? You haven't slept, so you can't remember how old he is? So, yeah. It's great to have it's great to have you guys. Good to see you. Um, I also want to take this opportunity real quick to remind you. Uh, most of you know this that uh, Gabriel, Pastor David, and I will be um, attending the G three National Conference in Atlanta. You guys have been so faithful in help us helping us to get there, and um, so we're leaving Wednesday, and we'll be there through Saturday, and we'll all be here bright and bushy, bright eyed and bushy tailed uh, Sunday morning. And so, but uh, we would love to have your prayer that this is a very uh, uh, effective time for us that we hear. Uh, some direction for our church and and some clarity and some things and so uh, we just would appreciate and covet your prayers for us this week. 
Um, let's get into the message. So as we proceed in our uh, meditation on God's attributes that we've been in for several weeks now, we've kind of launched a mini-series in the middle of the larger series. And we're, we're investigating the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God was the attribute that we looked at last week. But there are, there are elements and nuances to the wisdom of God that we, we felt like we should take another couple of weeks to kind of examine. And today we're going to focus on a related but yet still a precise attribute of God, which is His omniscience. Now a few weeks ago, we talked about how the word omnipotent comes from Latin roots that basically mean that God is all-powerful. Omniscience has a very similar etymology, as you might imagine, by the sound of the words. Omni, the Latin word for all, all all-inclusive. Um, and scientia, which is, is knowledge or science. And so like omnipotence, this word can only be properly applied to God since he is singularly all-knowing. There's nobody else, no other creature like him that knows everything. Now, when I say that God's, God is all-knowing, there's a, there's a likelihood that, that many of you, especially those of you who have been Christians for a while, will just set the cruise control and just try to make it through this message until we can get to the buffet afterwards. But the fact of, I say that because the, the fact of God's omniscience is not something that is generally challenged by Orthodox Christians, that we would never doubt it, we would never question it. If I had taken a poll and said, who here believes God is all-knowing, every hand would have probably gone up among the believers. But once we're freed from our native state of unbelief by the regenerating work of the Spirit, we quite naturally acknowledge that God must be all-knowing. And this truth is made clearer and clearer and clearer the deeper we get into the Bible. And because of this, I don't want to use this time to try to convince you that God knows everything, which I'm assuming that everyone hearing this message already believes, with the exception of the most atheistic or falsely converted people among us. Instead, today we're going to, we're going to meditate on the definition and the depth of omniscience. So, when I say we're going to meditate on the on the definition of omniscience, you say, check that off the box, you just did it. You told us that it means God is all-knowing. But that general fact sits right on the surface of what we're talking about. When I say definition, I mean to challenge us and say, what are the farthest reaches of omniscience that human minds can fathom? What are the implications of God's omniscience that we have maybe never really considered. So we're going to explore omniscience in a few ways. First of all, we're going to think about the the many ways in which God shows himself to be omniscient. And then we're going to seek to understand how the omniscience of God applies to and comforts believers. And then last, we'll see how the omniscience of God warns the unbeliever, as I said in my prayer. What effect should the knowledge of omniscience have on the lost as we are communicating the gospel to them? So last week, to start off this idea of the wisdom of God, we made a distinction between the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God. And you'll remember the definition of knowledge was a clear and certain perception of that which exists 
or of truth and fact. It is the perception of the connection and agreement or disagreement and absurdity of our ideas. And we learn that God has a perfect knowledge of all of his works. And when we talk about this element of knowledge in God, we're talking about his omniscience. He knows everything. He's all-knowing. Wisdom, however is the right use or exercise of knowledge. It's the choice of noble ends and the best means to accomplish them. God is also perfect in wisdom. Now, strictly speaking, from a theological standpoint, his omniscience is not his wisdom. They're not, they're, they're not the same thing, but rather his omniscience is the flower that springs from the root of his wisdom. I hope that makes sense. When we're speaking of God's omniscience, that he knows everything, what exactly are we affirming beyond the simple truth, as I said, that God knows everything? So what are we saying when we, when we do that, uh, when, we, when we talk about that? So we got a little help this week from the Puritan Thomas Watson, and he listed five facets of the knowledge of God. And these designations that he he communicated illustrate well the vast difference between God's knowledge and our knowledge. How many of you, before you even walked in the door today, were well aware that there is a vast difference between God's knowledge and your knowledge? Anybody want to volunteer to admit that you already knew that? But let's talk about how. First, Thomas Watson shows that the scriptures present God's knowledge to us as something pure. And by this he means, when he says that that the knowledge of God is pure, he means that the knowledge of God is effortless. You might see somebody who is really good at mathematics and you say, man, they're just, they're just a pure calculator. They just, they just can spit out numbers like crazy. You might see somebody, a great athlete. You might say, say, you know, uh, Michael Jordan was a pure basketball player. But, but what he means that God's knowledge is effortless, that God didn't acquire any of his limitless knowledge when he was studying at some university. He didn't have some tutor teaching him his knowledge. His knowledge, try to understand this, flows from himself. And as it flows from himself, all things are perfectly clear to him. His knowledge is pure. But more than that, it means that his knowledge is never polluted by sin. And when we think about that, we see the vast chasm separating the knowledge of humanity and the knowledge of God. Unlike the fallen creation, what God knows is never exploited for selfish gain. He doesn't manipulate facts He doesn't excuse or justify some sin of his by what he knows. Why? Because he doesn't sin. There is no sin in him to justify or excuse. In the exercise of his wisdom, in the use of his knowledge, his only goal is to show forth, as we said last week, his glory. God doesn't have to spin any facts. He doesn't put a positive spin on anything. He states things as they are. He does this because what he is and what he does is already perfect and it cannot be otherwise. All of his ways are perfectly suited for the flourishing of everything that he has created. Everything he has decreed is for the best possible ends. God can only be essentially what he is. So the the use of his knowledge always corresponds with the nature of God. 
The purity of his knowledge doesn't mean that God isn't aware of the deepest, darkest expressions of our depravity, but that he's unpolluted by it through his knowledge, his his proximity of knowledge, he's not polluted by it. His pure knowledge of sin, have you ever thought about this? God's pure knowledge of sin is what enables God to hate sin as much as he does. Because he doesn't, he's not deceived by sin. He's not tempted by sin. James says, God is not tempted by anyone. And so when he sees sin, unlike you and I, he sees it exactly for what it is. And so therefore he hates it and he condemns it and he, he sees the evil of it. In Job 38, 41, the chapters 38 through 41, uh, that we've come to the end of the story of poor Job. And God compares, he's answering Job now, and he compares Job's wisdom with his own. He compares the wisdom that, that Job has with his own. And he thoroughly impresses upon Job's mind the deficiency of Job's own knowledge. And Job recognizes that God's knowledge, coupled with his power, is pure. It is effortless. It is uncompromised by human sin or human limitations. Let me read you just the beginning of the last chapter, of of chapter 42. And in this, Job is going to repeat back two things that God had said to him um, as he's he's responding to God. And, And Job says this, I know now that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he reminds God in verse 3 that he had said to him, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job confesses up. Therefore I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful me for me, which I did not know. Again, he tells him what God had said to him. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. And this is Job's confession. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When human knowledge uh, collides with divine knowledge, this is the logical posture for all of us. For everyone who, who encounters the effortless purity of God's knowledge, we have to acknowledge His omniscience and, and repent for our arrogance and our self-confidence, when we, which so often denies the knowledge of God and defies it. Do you remember in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where, it's, where it talks about ideas that are elevated against the knowledge of God. Well, we all have those things where we, we for a moment, in, in moments of our sinfulness, we think differently than what God has spoken. And when we find ourselves doing that, we have to repent in dust and ashes and like Job say, I know nothing. Next, Watson says that the wisdom of God is not only pure, but perfect. And this, this is an absolute term. Think about that. It's not a relative term. Nothing in the universe exists that is kind of perfect. Nothing exists that's sort of perfect. It's either perfect or it's not. And what Watson means is that God's knowledge is infallible. This is normally what we're speaking of when we say that God is all-knowing. This is the surface level that we're talking about. But, but think deeper today. Think deeper this morning. Contrast human knowledge with God's knowledge. Sometimes we come to wrong conclusions. Why? Because we don't have correct information. We change our minds about previously held conclusions. 
Sometimes, influenced by sin, we ignore or we misapply facts in pursuit of greedy or lustful desires. And other times, we develop biases based on experiences that don't correspond to reality. Why? Because our knowledge is weak and, and, and frail and limited. But this is never the case with God. God always has all of the facts. Always. And he makes perfect judgments based on what he knows. And he never changes his mind. He isn't biased by some unfulfilled desire within him because there is no unfulfilled desire within him. Samuel pointed this out to Saul in, in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine. He said, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. But Watson goes on, Furthermore, God's knowledge is instantaneous. Do you think about this. God has never conducted an investigation. It's never happened. God never went out to figure out if, if this was true or, or, or that was true. He just knows and he knows instantly. He knows everything that can be known, not as it becomes reality, but before it becomes reality. He says in the prophets, he says, I am the one who declares the end from the beginning. He knows exactly how it's all going to pan out. God knows everything that has happened, that is happening, that will happen at all times in both the physical and spiritual realms throughout them all. Hebrews says, no creature is hidden from his sight. Now all of our knowledge is based on progression. We walk before we can run. We learn to run before we can ride a bike. We learn simple arithmetic in first grade before we can learn advanced calculus. Children go to piano lessons and they play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star before they start to tackle Beethoven or Mozart. We learn progressively. But think about this thought about your Creator. God knows as much today as He did throughout all the incalculable eons of eternity past. And the farthest reaches of eternal future will show no diminishing of his knowledge, no increasing of the knowledge of God. He knows all things past, present, and future at one single moment. And all of these things are always before his watchful eye. And this leads us to the next point. The next facet of God's knowledge is that it is retentive I thought about changing that word, but that's Watson's word, so I stuck with it. It's retentive. And this is what Watson means. He says he never loses any of his knowledge. He remembers as well as he understands. I am here to confess to you that I do not remember as well as I understand. There are many things that in school that I understood quite well that I do not remember. I didn't don't remember facts of Mathematics. I don't remember facts of history. I don't remember things of that nature. But God never forgets anything he ever understands. I love the comfort. We're going to talk more about the comfort in a minute. But the comfort that we get from this, from the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to this and just take comfort in it, believer. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention 
and heard them. Now watch this. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Wow. God has a book of remembrance. He keeps perfect records. He will never forget you. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? No saint has ever prayed a prayer or cried a tear that has been forgotten by God. It's never happened. I am constantly apologizing to many of you for things that I forgot to do that you have asked me to do. But God, in contrast to me, keeps keeps a perfect record and it corresponds to a perfect schedule. Isn't that amazing? But he also keeps a perfect record of everyone who defies his law and his holiness and promises that all, that all things will one day be set in order, like we sang about today. Genesis chapter 18, story of Sodom and Gomorrah. He comes and visits with Abraham and, and reveals to Abraham what his intention was for that wicked, those wicked cities. And it says in verse 18, chapter 18, verse 20 of Genesis, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done according to, altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now I can see the red flags going on. I just said that God never conducts an investigation. What language is he using here? I'm about to conduct an investigation. But what you got to understand about God uh, uh, as he reveals himself throughout scripture is that he, he uses language to accommodate himself to human understanding. And so here he's not speaking because he's ignorant of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew it, he saw it, he was well aware of it. But what he's doing is he's speaking as a righteous judge. We've all heard the concept of a hanging judge, that that the shoot first and ask questions later kind of judge. That is not God. He's a righteous judge. So he would examine the evidence, though he knew it, before he passes sentence. Those same holy eyes right now are on the sin of every man, every woman, every child collecting evidence in preparation of rendering one day a flawless verdict. Lastly, the knowledge of God is infinite. See, Ezekiel, when he saw his vision of God, he saw him represented symbolically like wheels moving within each other and spinning around and full of eyes all around the wheels. And they were seeing everything. There was nothing secret or undiscovered or unknown. And in the time that we have been talking here this morning, some distant meteor beyond the view of any of our advanced telescopes, has collided with some moon or some planet of which we do not know the name, we do not know the location. But God both saw that happen and he decreed it. At the same time, south of us in the Amazon, a butterfly, a single butterfly, has fallen dead. And God took note of it. Even though there were no prying human eyes watching the death of that insect, God saw it. So what? Distant meteors. Bugs in the Amazon. Who cares? 
Do you understand what I'm saying to you with those natural concepts? Somewhere the prayer of faith was just whispered silently in the heart of some poor, straying sinner and no human ear perceived it. None whatsoever. But it trumpeted into the ear of the Almighty. He heard it. He heard it loud and clear. Another person crafted a hateful thought, though they may have had a very religious outer shell. They, they crafted a hater thought, hateful thought, and then someone else crafted a very lustful thought. And both of these people thought that the vile thought was locked away in the dungeon of their heart, but God has looked upon the very face of the thought. Because his knowledge is infinite. So if the knowledge of God is pure, if it's perfect, if it's instantaneous, retentive, and infinite, what comfort can a believer extract from knowing that? Well, he can extract much in every single way. In our text this morning, David ponders that very question and he concludes our text. I'm starting at the, at the ending, not at the beginning. He concludes by saying, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. See, David is pondering the fact that there's nowhere he can be, no condition that he can be in that would shield him from God's loving and watchful eye. Look at the first verse again. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. What does he mean by this, searched me and known me? When both my children and my grandchildren were born, Ginger and I made a very careful examination of them. Which parent do they favor? Who do they look like? We, we had to make certain, absolutely certain, that there wasn't a clerical error and they had ten fingers and ten toes. How many, how many times have you counted that child's fingers and toes? I, I dare ask. We had to make sure. Are they, are they comfortable? Are they too hot, too cold? Are they hungry? Are they clean? And, and this is a pathetically weak analogy of how the Lord searches and knows His children that He loves so much. He knows and is intimately acquainted with your fears and your joys. He knows the things that intimidate you. He knows the things that break your heart. He is well aware of your hopes and your secret prayers. He knows the things that you are struggling to believe. And He knows the baggage that inhibits your perfect obedience. He knows when you're knocked flat, even if you're wearing a smile. And He knows that even if things look bad, that you're standing strong in faith. He knows. One of my favorite passages about the tender knowledge of God in all the scriptures found in Isaiah 49 verse 15. Talking about a mom and her baby. Can a mother, can a woman forget her nursing child? Now, that doesn't mean a woman who has a child so young it's nursing. While the child is nursing, God asks the question, can this woman forget her child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. 
And when you read that, you think, impossible, it can't happen. But we, in our culture, we see people discard children and abort children all the time. We see it. And so God acknowledges that. He says, even these, even these, while they're nursing their children, may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Now listen. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls are continually before me. God has carved your name in his hand so that he would always see it. And where did he do that? Literally. On the cross of Jesus, when spikes went through his hands, he was doing that. He was engraving his hands because you were ever before him and he would not forget you. Like that little infant sleeping in the crib with weirdo grandparents that are counting her toes. We have no awareness of God's loving gaze most of the time. In fact, sadly, sometimes we think he's nowhere around. And he's just counting fingers and toes. Making sure we're okay. But he's always there. He's always watching over, protecting, and loving his children. There's no concern that we have ever had of which he is unaware. There's no concern which is beyond his power or authority to intervene. David also marvels at the realization that of the distance that exists between God as his creator and himself as the lowly creature. And he realizes that this creates no barricade for God. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. David is known, though he's nothing like the one that sees him and who watches over his every step and monitors his every sleeping moment. In verse 3, he says, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. When I read that, I thought of, of God as... The wagon master. If you ever watched an old western, there's always someone, a a scout, who would go ahead of the wagon train to scout the rivers and the mountain passes. He'd been over that trail many, many times. He knew every single element of it. And he would, his job was to know the condition so he could get his, his wagon train safely through. And this is how God, how David envisions God. He's blazing a trail for him, a safe trail to journey leading him over any obstacles and through enemy territory and helping David to arrive safe and sound at his eternal homestead. But how does God do this so well? Well, this is where we come to the root of his omniscience. See, there's no obstacle, there's no strategy of the enemy that God has not foreseen and already overcome by his omniscience. He's acquainted with all of David's ways and has searched out all of his path, knowing the end from the beginning. An an omniscient God can never be surprised by sneak attacks or unforeseen circumstances. These things cannot exist before a God who knows everything. Now, they can exist before you. They can exist before me. That's why I rejoice that my life is not my own. It's been hidden with Christ in God who sees and knows everything. And in him, I am safe. 
Next, David recognizes how this applies to all his own actions, his thoughts and his words. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me, hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Before any thought can be expressed in words, God fully knows it. David sees himself, therefore, as enveloped in the knowledge and the power of God. He never utters his complaint or shouts his praise without the Lord first foreseeing it. God is so intimately aware of him that words become somewhat unnecessary. We only need to speak to God, not so that he can know anything, but in order for us to better process our own thoughts and, and, and express our trust in God Almighty, so that we can know what's in our hearts. God speaks back to us in the Bible, and he makes his perfect heart toward us known over and over and over and over and over again. What knowledge. What intimacy God has with his own. After 30 years, there's very little mystery to me about what my wife is thinking and vice versa. She knows everything I'm thinking. She can tell by the expression on my face, the tone of my voice. But even that intimacy, after 30 years, is an imperfect shadow of God's perfect knowledge of you and I. Why? Because he's known you eternally. The Bible calls it foreknowledge. We're going to talk about that next week. But he has foreknown you eternally and he purchased you, selected you, and purchased you by his blood. But what should store up a believer's heart with a treasure house of comfort should have the opposite effect on all who reject God, who rebel and sin against him with supposed impunity. This is how David again puts it at this time in Psalm 73. He says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely, however, David would respond, the Most High does know. But the unregenerate mind is too foolish to understand that God's kindness, his patience, his his delay in acting against their sin is what should be leading them to repentance. Like the rich man who ignored poor Lazarus begging beneath his table in Jesus' parable, a day will come swiftly, taking you by surprise, when all the good things you've held on to greedily with clenched fists will be ripped from your hands. And you will beg for a single drop of water to be applied to your burning tongue. Yet not even that physical torment will be the worst of it. The day will come, the Bible assures us, when your resurrected, worm-eaten body will be called to stand before pure holiness. And he will try you by perfect justice and perfect truth. And there will be no need for you to assemble some well-coached witnesses for your defense. For he has seen and recorded everything. Every action. Every intention. Every word. Every thought. And if you are not found to be perfect... Every delusion of justification, every false hope you've ever entertained will evaporate instantly forever. 
you will tediously give account, not for everything you remember, but for everything God remembers. And how can you possibly hope to make a defense for yourself in that awful day? James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become guilty of all of it. How will you regret in that moment, in that awful day, bearing your own sin instead of letting Jesus Christ bear it for you on the cross? Are your desires, your opinions, your preferences, your biases so important that you would heap condemnation on your own head and cast away your own soul in hell? With what fig leaf do you hope to conceal yourself? Today, this very day, a decision must be made. Will the knowledge of God be a peace-producing comfort to you, or will it just be an imminent nightmare soon to become reality. Some of you have, thankfully, most of you have fled to Jesus for safety and to find refuge for your souls by faith. Others of you have already deceived yourself and hardened your hearts almost beyond the point of hope. For the rest of you, today is the day of salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord who knows everything and be saved. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we stand here completely revealed to you, completely known, searched. There's no secrets. There's nothing you don't know. There's nothing you haven't seen. There's nothing you haven't foreseen, God. You know, you've known us before the moment of our, of our birth and even in this very Instant, you know the moment of our death. You know the things that we battle with, that what we're struggling with right now. And you know the, the things that we believe and the things that we are walking in unbelief. So Lord, I pray that all of us, believer and unbeliever alike, would be shaken by the truth of your omniscience, that those of us who know you would be shaken from our our tendency to worry and fear. And we would remember the passage in Timothy where the Lord promises that God knows those who are his. And God, I pray for those here that are still not saved. The summer is long past and they're still not saved. And Lord, I pray that you would shake them to repentance, Lord. Rob them of the sleep, both literal and spiritual, that that comforts them to forget a God whose eye is always upon them. And help them to hear the voice of your Spirit and be called to repentance and turn in faith to Christ and be forgiven. The only hope any of us have of escaping your judgment and knowing you, not just escaping judgment, but knowing you and the great love that you have for us, that David celebrated, that we've tried to celebrate this morning. So God, do your work that only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Amen. If I could have my communion helpers come forward and help us to serve at the table today. Um, we're about to receive uh, this this great reminder, this covenant renewal, um, where, where the Lord speaks through these elements and tells us that he has not forgotten us. The symbol that he saw us when we were crying out under the slavery of sin, death, and the devil. And he did what was necessary to rescue us because he was the God who knew. And so we come with grateful hearts. And and um, I just want to, you know, this morning I was a little bit uh, more serious about calling you to repentance. Those of you that are here that don't know Christ, and I want to reaffirm that. Um, we want you to know Christ. You're... you're this is not a game, and, and there there is a day that's coming sooner than later that you will stand before God. And so, um, but but the beauty of this is is that God invites through Christ all who would believe to come to Him. You don't have to like you know make your dramatic change so that you can come. You come so that He can change you. And so uh, if you're willing to believe today, I want to encourage you, and I, I want to put the Put this this weight on you that I want you to seek out myself or Gabriel this morning, and and let us talk to you. Let us share with you the beauty of this gospel. We're not going to put you on parade and and make you you know stand out in front of everybody and make a speech or anything like that. We just want to be able to pray with you and help you to have the confidence and the assurance that you are one of Christ's own, and and so that you can have that joy. For the rest of you, this, and if that is you that has not yet made that decision, please remain where you are as we take this communion. It would mean nothing to you, and the Bible tells us that that those who uh, eat and drink unworthily eat and drink condemnation on themselves. So it would only add to your sins that you are already under judgment for. And so, but for the rest of you, we want to invite you to come joyfully and receive this this great reminder, this great uh, blessing, this this unifying of ourselves with the risen body of Christ. And then take these elements back to your seat, and we'll share them together in just a moment. But you're welcome to come. This morning we're reading from Matthew's Gospel, and he said, "Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples." And said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's partake of the bread together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you that I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's just take a moment and give thanks for the God that knows. Father, we thank you that you see us, you know us, we are ever before you. And God, that you have proven your great love for us through Jesus. And so God, we pray that you would um, keep the reminder before us all the days of this week, this month, this year, the rest of our lives, that you are a God who knows us. You have searched us. And you know us. You know our rising and our lying down. You know every thought uh, before it is formed, every word before it's formed. And so, God, we take great comfort in that. God, you know the day, as I said earlier, of our death, and you will be there to carry us safely to the next life. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name.
Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to speak this benediction over you as we dismiss. Psalm 147.5 Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.